Arthur Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. I'm honored that you're here. Thank you for tuning in. I am going to present an interview with Herman Rush. He's had a number of titles through the years. He's worked as a producer and agent. I connected with Herman Rush because he has one of the biggest collections of Frank Sinatra memorabilia of anyone. As I said, he's had a lot of experiences. He was once the chairman of Columbia Pictures Television, and he also ran Coca-Cola Telecommunications. Herman Rush also served as one of the early executive producers of the famed Montel Williams show. He worked on television shows for a number of great legendary talents, from Tom Jones to Perry Como, as you're about to hear. Herman Rush is quite an interesting man. It's something I'm very passionate about, recording stories, recording interviews with people who have had very interesting experiences and very interesting perspectives. You can help the Paul Leslie Hour to keep going. Just go to thepaulleslie.com. Click on support the show. Every little bit helps. I have many more interviews that I want to get out there, and I can't do it without you. Now let's get into the interview with Herman Rush here on the Paul Leslie Hour. Okay, I'm in your fine hands. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest is Herman Rush. Throughout his life, he's had many titles. Agent producer, chairman. He was CEO of Coca-Cola Telecommunications, CEO of the Columbia Pictures Television Group. That's just a few of the things. So first of all, Herman Rush, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Most stories have a beginning. Where does it start for you? I'm not sure there is a beginning. I would have to go back a a few years if you uh, want to start at the beginning. I never had any interest in anything in life other than the entertainment industry. I had family was, that was in the entertainment industry, and I was fascinated by their stories, their experiences, and I sort of grew up in their shadow and got a job right and early when I was still in school. My first job literally was managing musical combos in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I went to Temple University, and I would book those musical combos for fraternity and sorority parties and different types of proms, and that kind of uh, started me in the business. You said you pretty much never had any interest other than entertainment. Why Why is that? I don't know. My father was a uh, pediatrician. I had no interest in medicine. He never pressured me in any way to become a doctor. I had an uncle who was an executive, a successful executive in the entertainment industry. He became my surrogate father when my father died. I was still a teenager. And uh, I sort of just segued into the world of entertainment. So tell us a little bit about these combos that you managed. They were just local bands? What were they? They were local musical groups that started out with uh, one friend of mine who was a pianist. And uh, anytime we would ever go out to a party... Uh, uh, everybody would say his name was Moose Charlotte. They would say, Moose, there's a piano over here. Play something for us. And one thing led to another. We put together a musical group, about six-piece combo, 
and I went out and managed them and was their agent. And when they were booked, I needed a second act and a third act and signed up others that I met in the Philadelphia area. And I sort of was manager for close to two dozen musical groups while I was still in school. So you've always been a music lover. Well, Paul, not everything I've done is in music. I started out in music. Uh, I would just segue to tell you my second job, if you will. <laughs> I became a record promoter getting local disc jockeys in Philadelphia, uh, Baltimore, Washington to play the records of the clients I represented. And that came about because when I was managing these two dozen little musical groups, I was a cheapskate, and I would go to New York to the Brill Building, where all the music publishers were located, and literally introduce myself to music publishers and tell them I had uh, two dozen musical combos, and if they would give me the sheet music, I would make sure that their songs were played. And in that way, I got uh, sheet music for two dozen combos without having to go out and buy it. And that uh, introduced me to the music publishers, and two other relationships that I had, and I uh, became a record promoter. I'm going back to the 1940s, uh, mid, mid-1940s, late-1940s. I had three clients in those days. One was Dinah Shore, one was a vocalist by the name of Buddy Clark, and the third was a young vocalist by the name of Frank Sinatra. And they paid me $25 a week in those days to get the local disc jockeys to play the records. And I would call on them after school hours. I would go before school, six in the morning, the early morning disc jockeys. I met the late night disc jockeys. And somehow I uh, ingratiated myself to them. But I had good clients. I had good singers. You could get in the front door when you represent Frank Sinatra. If you have something that they want, it makes that uh, life all, all that much easier. And I began to to promote, uh, promote records in the, in the Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington area. On the note of Frank Sinatra, when you first met him, what was your first immediate impression? Well, I met him under very uh, positive circumstances, and I was always impressed with him as a human being and as a vocalist and as a talent, as well as a businessman. I have to really talk about my uncle if I may do so, that uh, influenced uh, my life in so many ways. His name was Emanuel Sachs, Manny Sachs. He was an MCA agent in the 1930s and 40s. He became the vice president in charge of artists and repertoire at Columbia Records in the 1940s and subsequently went to RCA, both RCA Records and NBC. His life was the world of entertainment. He he uh, lived in Philadelphia, came from Philadelphia, that was our family, but he had his offices in New York, and he was the tale of two cities. And whenever I would go to New York, I would, I would stay at his, his apartment as his, as his guest, and he would have friends, and they all were the people I've mentioned. He actually was one of the early mentors of Frank Sinatra, and Frank was just sort of hanging out in those days at my uncle's apartment. And I was the young kid, the teenage kid on the block. And we developed a relationship, and it was a good one to the day he died. I don't know if I could give you my first impressions. I was always in awe when I was in Frank Sinatra's presence. He had that effect on me, as he did on many other people. What was it about him specifically that put you in awe, aside from his immense, incredible talent? 
Well, let's start with the incredible talent, which he had in the very beginning. And as it developed, he became more and more successful. I found him to be a charming individual. He was well-educated in his own way. He was an avid reader. I don't think he ever graduated high school, let alone college. But there are interesting things about him. He was a, a musician to the nth degree, and he could not read a note of music. But he knew the arrangements. He knew who were the best people to compose, to, to arrange, the best engineers. And throughout his life, he, he always, uh, I always learned that as a lesson from him. Go with the best. As you mentioned earlier, it's not just music that you have been involved in, also your television career. How did you get involved with TV? <laughs> Again, it was a matter of circumstances. When I was doing record promotion work, I got to know most of the disc jockeys and the program directors of the local radio stations in Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington. As television came along, those Tele those radio stations became the television stations and the program directors that I knew became the film buyers, if you will, of the television stations. I had uh, entree to them. I knew them. And I got a job selling film programs uh, in 1951, a company called Official Films. It was a home movie company. And the television came along. I got a job as a salesman and set up on their board of directors, vice president of the company, and was with official films for about, I guess, 10 years in my career. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Creative Management Associates, CMA. You were with them for many years. Yes, I was. It started out with, I was an agent for a company called the General Artist Corporation. Uh, this was in the 1960s. General Artist Corporation, known as GAC, was the maybe the third or the fourth talent agency in size in the business. The major companies were MCA, Music Corporation of America, the William Morris Agency. GAC was somewhere up there in the top five, but it was small compared to the others. And I became an agent in the 60s. A friend of mine bought, the, bought control of the company. And he wanted to develop it from more than just a variety uh, talent agency into a television talent agency. I had some experience, as I pointed out, being with official films. And later I owned my own company called Flamingo Films. And he enticed me to become an agent. So I started out with a company called General Artists Corporation. Through mergers, through the years, it became... Uh, Creative Management Associates, and today it's International uh, ICM, International Creative Management. It's very interesting, all of the shows that you were responsible for packaging, the Perry Como show, the Jackie Gleason show, the Engelbert Humperdinck show. Tell me about that experience of working the packaging and network placement of these different shows. Well, as you pointed out, those shows you mentioned with the early shows, both in my career and with the uh, General Artist Corporation, and they represented the artists. They represented Perry Como in the recording world, in the cafe nightclub world, and it became my uh, responsibility to to get them involved in television. So I started my career handling various artists, but I really was a packager of putting together those shows. Those days, selling a show to a network was completely and totally different 
than it is today. The networks were the owners of the air, if you will, and independent producers and packages were the owners of the programming. And the networks licensed those programs. Today, it is different. Today, uh, the networks are producers as well as the owners of the air time and independent to sell programming as I started out of my career would be very rare today because now my potential customers, ABC, NBC, CBS, today the Fox Network, they're competitors. It's tough to sell your competitors. Of those shows, was there one that you were particularly fond of? I loved all my children. <laughs> I mean, I segued out of the music area. I uh, was very close to a science fiction producer by the name of Irwin Allen, very involved with Irwin. I know not only was his agent, but we became very close friends, and we packaged, and he did such shows as Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Time Tunnel, Lost in Space, and was known as the Master of Disaster. So they, they were non-musical shows, if you will, in the early days of my career. In the entertainment business, how important is it to build relationships? Paul, I think it's probably as important in every business to build relationships. I think especially in the entertainment business where you are dealing with non, you're dealing with intangibles. You're dealing with the talent. You're dealing with passions and emotions. And I think relationships are most important in that entertainment world. But I think they're probably, that's probably true in many industries. Hmm. Throughout your career, what would you say one of the biggest challenges you faced was? <laughs> Getting up every day to face the world. <laughs> there's, there's, I, I don't know that I could be specific in a specific challenge. I think every program that was ever created and got on, got on the air was a challenge to the people involved in that program. None of those things were easy. The potential customers of the networks, the studios, weren't standing in line to buy what you had. You had to sell it to them. You had to understand that what their needs were, what the voids were on their schedules. You had to try to fill those voids. And that's how relationships developed over the years. With all of the things that you've done in these various entities, whether being a producer, whether being the CEO of the Columbia Pictures Television Group, all of these things, has there been one that was the most gratifying, the most gratifying position to hold? i got to give a little thought to that. I found most of them gratifying. I'm not being patronizing. I enjoyed everything I've done in the business, and I've done good shows, and I've done some bad shows. The good shows survive and are remembered, and the bad shows disappear and are forgotten. But, you, you know, not every, not every uh, time you hit a ball is at a home run. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, sure there's any, I'm not sure there's any one specific one that might answer your question. Would you say that there's a person that you've learned the most from? That's probably my Uncle Manny Sachs. What would you say is one of the lessons that he taught you that you, you find yourself remembering again and again? Integrity. Developing trust from those people you're dealing with. We live in a world where 40, 50-page contracts were very rare. We had one, two-page deal memos, 
Integrity became a very important factor. I think I was one of the lessons I learned from my uncle. There's so many of those kind of things through the years that you do pick up. But integrity to me stands out to be the vital and key point. Do you think that integrity is something that there is less of in the entertainment business today? No. No, I think there still is integrity in the entertainment business. I think it has changed in so many ways. There have been mergers. There are conglomerates today that are part of corporate America. And one- and two-page deal memos are not in style today. There are 40- and 50-page contracts. But that's corporate America. That's not a matter of of, uh, lack of integrity at all. I kind of want to jump back to Frank Sinatra for a little bit. Tell us the Spirit of America story. (laughs) Uh, You're picking a strange one for me. All right. Spirit of America took place in 1976. It was a 90-minute television special I was involved with as one of the producers celebrating the bicentennial anniversary of our country. I'm talking about 1976. And ABC was interested in doing some salute to our country using the, uh, if you will, some kind of a television special that would be a salute to the birthday of the United States. And my associate at the time was a producer by the name of David Walper. David went on to great, great success in documentary world and in motion pictures as well as television. And David said, let's do a tribute by saluting America from its national parks, national monuments, with top stars doing something that would be a reflection of, of a birthday to the United States. That's how it started out. And there were others involved. I wasn't the only one, but I was the one that went to ABC to sell it to them. And I made my presentation to, to uh, the president of ABC at the time, Frederick Pierce. Fred Pierce and I had known each other for some years. We had done business together. I think that integrity was all part of that relationship. And I presented the concept of 21 stars saluting America, each from a different historical place. And at the end of the presentation, I'll never forget it, Fred said, Herman, you, if you could put together 21 stars, and they are the list you have just given me, you're a genius, so I'm not going to hold you to that list. You deliver 21 stars, and I'm only going to hold you to one name that you mentioned. You mentioned you would close the show with Frank Sinatra singing The House I Live In from somewhere in Washington, D.C. You deliver that, and I'll accept what other 20 other stars you bring to the table. And I had an order. I had a sale. I now had to find Frank Sinatra to get him to agree to do with it. The story I think that you want to hear is how I went about getting Frank. We knew each other. We weren't strangers through the years, as I pointed out earlier. And he was appearing in Lake Tahoe at the time. He was opening that week in Lake Tahoe. I just took a plane. I flew to Reno, rented a car, went to Tahoe, checked into a hotel, got myself showered, shaved, and that night went to the Frank Sinatra's opening at uh, Harris Club. And I still hadn't talked to him. I hadn't presented my idea to him. But at the end of every opening evening, Frank always threw a party. In this case, he had the penthouse, and I was invited to uh, join the party at 2 in the morning after his second show. 
And I went up there and the, the greetings and hello, how are you, all that type of thing. And Frank said, what are you doing here? So I said, well, I came up to see you. I have a business proposition for you. <laughs> he laughed. He says, what is it? I said, Frank, no, it's 2.30 in the morning. This is social. It's your party. What time's your office hours? I'll come in the morning and we'll talk. He said, okay, I'll see you tomorrow when I get up. Now, in Frank's world, that was 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Had a meeting with him, and literally, I had rehearsed my sales pitch to him about doing the house I live in. He had uh, done a, a short at RKO in 1945 based on that song. It was at a time of uh, just sort of a, uh, a, a musical salute to uh, against discrimination and bigotry in the United States. I don't know if you're familiar with that particular song or the little short film that resulted in it. At any rate, I was into, into my pitch with Sinatra. I rehearsed it. I stood in front of a camera that night, the night before, and I had a 20-minute presentation, and I probably was two minutes into my pitch. Frank said, I love it. I'll do it. I stood up, shook his hand, said goodbye, walked out the door to the elevator. He said, he said to me, where are you going? I said, you just said yes to me. I've got nothing more to discuss with you. He laughed. He said, come on, we'll meet with my lawyer. We'll work the deal out. Make a long story short. He wanted a lot of money, and he deservedly should get a lot of money. And I said, Frank, whatever I give you, i got to give the other 20 stars. i got to give everybody the same. He said, how much do you have in your budget? I said, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars. He said to his lawyer, Mickey Rudin, what is after scale? And he was told $178. And Frank looked at me, said to his lawyer, I'm going to do the show that he wants me to do for $178, get the contract done, and that's it. And he walked away. And he came back, and he looked at me, eyeball to eyeball. He said, did I just do you a favor? I said, you certainly did, Frank. Frank said, do you owe me a favor? I said, I certainly do. He said, whatever you would have given me, I want you to pay it to the Palm Springs Hospital in the, in the name of my in memory of my father. I went back to ABC. I got them to give me $50,000. They went to the hospital. And the only amendment to the normal after contract, Frank had a clause put in, I could not discuss the charitable contribution. And he was uh, pre-taped that segment in Washington with a marvelous tribute to the country. He did it, and he's done it so many times. He uses that in, in his act. And he was getting slammed by the press and all the negative stories that they liked to write about Sinatra in those days. I called him up. He was at Caesar's Palace. I said, Francis, they're kicking you in the butt. You just did a marvelous thing, something that uh, I like to publicize it. He says, Herman, it's between you and me. That's personal what I do in my charitable contributions. You may not publicize it. And to the day he died, I never told that story. Mm. Now, that's just one story with me. How many other times did this man do the same thing? How many other contributions came about to his generosity that he did not boast about? So, you know, to answer your question, that was my relationship with him. And again, it was uh, a reflection of the man as I knew him. That song, The House I Live In, I am familiar with that song. I suppose every time you hear it, you think of that story. 
Well, yes, I think of that story. I think of the uh, the short film that was made in 1945, and Frank really was dedicated to that particular reflection, if you will, of America. It's a side of him that a lot of people aren't aware of his generosity of spirit. No question about it, but uh, that, that was the man. What is the best thing about being Herman Rush? You're a tough interviewer. <laughs> Paul, I've enjoyed what I've done in my career. I've had success at it. Not every show, not every project has been successful, but overall I've had a success. I've been able to uh, have relationships with the industry leaders in the industry that I chose as my profession. I'm proud of what I've done, and I think that's the only answer I can give you. I think something that we have in common is that I have this affliction of never being bored. <laughs> you wrote a book called Never Bored. Yes. Tell us a little more about the, the title and and this fact about yourself. Well, I, I wanted to do some memoirs. I wanted to write a story. I've never written a book. And, and at, at, a, at a kiddie moment, someone said to me, what, what have you done that, that, that bores you in life? I said, I've never been bored. And he said, that's the title of your book. So I, I have a book that I wrote called uh, Never Bored. And it is the story of my career in the business. And I never have been bored. And now I'm uh, uh, going to write a sequel. I'm still not bored. Still not bored. So it's more more of your memoirs? Or tell us about the second book. Well, it's, it's just uh, I finished this book some years ago. And since since then, I have done other things that are not included in the book. I executive produced the Montel Williams talk show, five time per week television show for 17 years. Uh, I was never bored. We have uh, fascinating stories in any kind of a talk show. Montel was quite a, a host, if you will, a talk show celebrity. And uh, the show was very successful. And I had 17 years of non-boredom. And I've done several other shows since then in uh, new technology and uh, the Internet. So I'm still doing things that are challenges. I still find an excitement and a satisfaction and enjoyment on, on never being bored. What do you think about the Internet as the new media? Content is king. It's, it's, there have been so many new medias over the years. Yes, the Internet is the newest one. It's having a technological uh, revolution in the industry as we know it, both from production to distribution to the technology of, of marketing. You know, radio was, was a big advancement at the time. Television came. Television was a big advancement. The original television was in black and white. It was on kinescope. The quality was not that good through the years. That improved. Now there's a new technology. It doesn't use the air. It doesn't use cable. It's, uh, it's a different technology known as the Internet. But it still depends on content. And as long as you have the kind of content people want to look at, want to be witness to and enjoy with the new technology, you can now see your programs where, when you want to see it, where you want to see it, wherever you are. You can see them on a mobile phone. You can see it on a large screen. I think that it's it's a big advancement, and it brought about a whole new industry out there in the world of entertainment. 
What would you say to someone of any age, really, that wants to embark on a career in entertainment? Paul, what advice would I give today's younger generation? Interesting that you do ask that because I do spend some time mentoring college students in the world of television and film. And I, I guess my, my advice is you must have a total commitment to what you believe in. You must have a passion for it. And that's why if you have to be a waiter or a waitress to pay your way, you have to be dedicated to that part of the entertainment world that you want to uh, participate in. That's the only advice I could give them. If you really want to be a performer or a creator, you must dedicate yourself to it. You have to have a passion for it. You must believe in it. And you must work as hard as you can to achieve that uh, achievement. My last question. Who is Herman Rush? That will be the third book that I do, and I haven't gotten to that yet. (laughs) I am me. I am Herman Rush. I've had a passion for what I've done in my career. I've been dedicated to doing what I've accomplished. That is me. Well, thank you very much for this interview. I appreciate it. You got me drinking two glasses of water so far, Paul. (laughs) If you have any other questions, call me back. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Paul. Goodbye.